I don't know if you've ever learned a major life lesson from a spider, but I have. And it's because I've been fascinated by the natural world and the way it works for as long as I can remember. And while my first career as a chemist and my current career as a theology professor are very different in many ways, there is one thing that I've found that they share in common, and that is the importance of wonder. And so today, I want to tell you about three times that wonder helped me to see a deeper relationship between faith and science. One involves a saint, one involves a map, and one involves a spider in an art exhibit. The first story I came across in, the, in a book by the British physicist Tom McLeish. He's telling the story of St. Gregory of Nyssa, who lived in the fourth century, and in the year 379, Gregory's brother died, and he was distraught. So he decided to go visit their older sister, St. Macrina, but when he got there, he discovered she was also on her deathbed. And so they had one last day to have a conversation together. And many years later, Gregory wrote down what he remembered to be the substance of that conversation. And a lot of it is exactly what you'd expect. They talk about God and faith and heaven and resurrection and those kinds of things. But what really caught my attention was that there are several places where Gregory and Macrina just kind of veer into what we would call science experiments, and they do that to kind of shed light on the topic of faith that they're talking about. So I'll give you an example. Uh, at one point, they're talking about how do you know something is there if you can't see it? And St. Macrina says, well, like take a bottle, it looks empty, but you plunge it underwater and you see bubbles come up. So then you know, now that it's underwater, that there was something in the bottle, it was air. Um, and they do this a number of times. And what caught my interest about this is that in doing that, they were simply assuming that science, the discovery of the natural world, can tell us something important about God and our faith. And the truth is that many great minds throughout the church have approached science that way. To take a modern example, at the time that Charles Darwin was doing his work, uh, one of the great theologians of the time was John, uh, John Henry Newman. And many people asked Newman, what do, you, what do you make of these discoveries by Darwin? And Newman said, I see nothing incompatible between what Darwin is talking about and the principles of our Catholic faith. Not too long later, Pope Pius XII said that the evolutionary sciences can help us understand the bodies that God has given us and how they work. John Paul II said, we need to treat evolution and the science behind it as more than just a theory. And Pope Benedict XVI said he thought science and faith were complementary realities. And then finally, Pope Francis said that he saw nothing inconsistent about receiving the benefits of scientific knowledge and the affirmation of the Christian faith. And this raises the question, why do so many people think that the church's view of science is the exact opposite of that? Not just people outside of the church, but many people inside the church assume the opposite view. Why is that? Well, the reason in part goes back to a shift that happened in how people began to think about God. Up until this shift, people thought of God as infinite and unlike any created thing. 
And because of that, every created thing, whether it's the material world or it's the laws of physics, all of those things depended upon God and therefore also reflected something about God. But a few hundred years ago, and then really peaking in the 1800s, people began to think about God in a different way. They thought about God as just one more character within the theater of the world. And so God was one possible cause alongside other possible causes. And so they began to think, well, God is only responsible for what can't be explained by something else. They said, oh, you can't explain that, so it must be God. They no longer saw God as working through those other causes. They saw God as in competition with those other causes. And of course, once you do that, once you identify God as only what is unexplained by something else, then the more you discover, the smaller the role for God gets. And so as science explained more and more and more, the role for God got smaller and smaller and smaller. And so for many people, he ceased to be relevant at all. So how do we get back? How do we shift back to the traditional way of seeing God in relationship to the natural world? And here I would suggest to you that Pope Francis has put his finger right on the solution in Laudato Si. Look at these quotes with me. Pope Francis says, rather than a problem to be solved, the world is a joyful mystery to be contemplated. Think about that. The world is a joyful mystery to be contemplated. And then later on, quoting the Canadian bishops, he says, from panoramic vistas to the tiniest living form, nature is a constant source of wonder and awe. It's also a continuing revelation of the divine. Don't miss that connection. As nature is a source of wonder, it becomes a revelation of the divine. Wonder is the gateway to seeing God's role in the world. One time that this happened to me was when I was a senior in college. I was a chemistry, biochemistry major. And I decided to take a class on metabolism. Metabolism is how our bodies break down food and get energy out of them. And I guess like most people, I mean, I knew that you have to eat to have energy, but I I never really thought about like, how is it that our body takes food and gets energy that our muscles can move and so forth? So I thought, oh, this is gonna be an interesting class. And the professor, the first day of class, kind of gave an overview of the course. And uh, he said, we're going to start with what's known as the Krebs cycle. And I thought, oh, okay, I remember something about the Krebs cycle from biology. This is kind of a series of chemical reactions that goes around in a loop. And so as the reactions proceed, it ends up right back where it started. And so it can just keep going around and around and pulling off energy. And I thought, okay, I know something about this. It'll be cool to see all all these mechanisms, the kind of chemical stuff that's happening to make this cycle go around. And you can see it looks pretty complicated there. And he said, and then after we do that, we're gonna branch out and look at all the interconnected chemical pathways that help support and uh, and are involved with the Krebs cycle. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And then he put up the Roche Roche Metabolic Pathway Map. 
And that's what that looks like. You can see the Krebs cycle is right there in the middle. And when he put this up, I thought, well, the first thing I thought was, how in the world am I going to pass this class? But the <laughs> second thing I thought was, how can it be that it is that complex and interconnected? And what amazed me about this chemical pathway was that the more I studied it, the more amazed I was. It wasn't that knowing less led me to wonder, it's that knowing more led me to wonder. And so as the semester progressed and we worked our way around this map, I became more and more amazed. And as I contemplated the elegance and the sophistication, the interconnectedness of this chemical pathway, it started to dawn on me that it's kind of remarkable, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but it's remarkable how many different kinds of food we can eat, right? Like a lawnmower, you have to put gasoline in it to work. If you put water or milk or Mountain Dew, it's not gonna work, right? But you can put all kinds of food into the human body. You can put bread, you can put an apple, you can put a crunchy gordita with extra hot sauce, and your body, maybe uncomfortably, but your body will get energy out of it, right? And it'll return right back to where it was because this is what's happening. If you think back, all the things that have happened in human history, they happen because of this. This is the engine of human life. Think about the most important, meaningful times in your life. They were made possible by this. When Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, this was happening in his body. When his disciples extended their hands to take that bread, this was happening. When you extend your hands today to take it, this is what's happening. And that is amazing. And so as the semester went on, I was filled with more and more wonder. And the truth is, most scientists have experiences of wonder, and often on a regular basis. Science is advancing ever faster, and it's revealing things to us we never dreamed imaginable even a short time ago. So the question is, as all of these discoveries are coming at us, what should our response be? And I would suggest to you that the essence of a Christian response is not fear. The essence of a Christian response is wonder. The church welcomes truth wherever it may be found. Right? And admitting we don't have all the answers is a stance of humility that opens us to receive these new discoveries, to find ever more indications of what God is like in the world around us. Wherever truth may be found, and there is still much to be found, there is much to contemplate as a joyful mystery. And this brings me to my last story. One of my favorite places to go, especially to get away, is Asheville, North Carolina. It's a great town in the western part of the state. It's nestled in the, the Appalachian Mountains. My wife and I just found the, the city magical and, and relaxing. And right outside of the city is uh, the Biltmore Estate, which was built uh, a while back by the Vanderbilt family. And you can see a picture here. It's this almost palace-like house with uh, incredible landscape grounds uh, settled within the mountains. And uh, you can walk around this for hours, and you just never stop seeing things that, that are amazing and beautiful. 
And a few years ago, my wife and I visited the Biltmore when, for the first time ever, they hosted an art exhibit at the Biltmore. It was by the renowned glass artist, Dale Chihuly, and he designed these glass pieces, and then they were integrated within the landscape and the house of the Biltmore. And you can see some of the pictures here. They were illuminated, particularly at dusk, and it was beautiful. We walked around and just kind of soaked it up. And, uh, and so you can see that as you're walking around, you're kind of surrounded both by artistic beauty and natural beauty and architectural beauty, and it's kind of all there seamlessly together. Well, when we were there, as we were about to leave, we were passing right in front of the house again, and right to the right there near the, the garden atrium, uh, there's this uh, glass sculpture piece. And I just happened to look over, and I noticed right between two of those spires was a tiny little spider web. And I thought, that's kind of funny, because like, I'm a human, and I can't like, go anywhere near these. It's cordoned off. But that spider just walks right up there and does this thing. <laughs> and then I thought, and that spider has no idea, right? He's looking for two hard surfaces so he can spin a web and get a meal. He has no idea of the beauty that is supporting that web. And he can't appreciate the towering architecture in front of him or the natural beauty beyond the scope of his vision. And I thought, that spider, he's in the midst of layers of beauty and he has no idea. And then I thought, how often are we like that? How often do we go through life and we never see the beauty, the complexity, the sophistication that God has laid out around us, that is supporting everything we do. Friends, don't be that spider. Don't be that spider. Open your eyes. Be receptive to wonder. Engage the world around you. Because when you open yourself to the possibility of constant discovery, of the revelation of God that he has placed all around us, when you do that, God will meet you in your wonder.